So I wasn't quite sure what to speak on uh, today. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I think I have one more chapter in the book of Ruth to do at some point, but I decided today that try and look at um, Matthew chapter 26, verse 36. So Matthew 26, verse 36, which is really the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. <coughs> <coughs> Excuse me. So Matthew 26, 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter uh, and the two sons of Zebedee along with him and began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fail into fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he turned to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived, and with him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them, the one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus's companions reached for his sword and drew it out and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that says it must happen in this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, 
Am I leading a rebellion, rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Well, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane is, I suppose, uh, one of the most sacred and solemn scenes in all of Scripture. It, it gives us a glimpse, I think, into the grueling pain that Jesus experienced as he waited in the garden and in the presence of his father for the mob uh, that would arrest him and drag him off to the high priest's house as he waited for that mob to arrive. Luke, who was a medical doctor, we're told later in the New Testament, uh, tells us that the intensity of the Savior's anguish as he waited and anticipated all that he was going to experience, the, the, the intensity and anguish of the Savior was such that his perspiration or his, uh, the sweat dropped from his brow in great drops of blood. Luke also tells us that in the middle of his anguish, uh, God sent an angel to minister to him, to encourage him and to strengthen him. It was Alexander White, a famous Scottish preacher of a bygone age, who said that after meeting Christ himself in glory, he would like his first conversation to be with the angel, for no other being in the universe witnessed so intimately the suffering of the Savior. And as we look at this passage for a few minutes this morning, um, my prayer is that God will reveal to you and to me and to us together something of uh, what Jesus suffered as he anticipated the cross and as the cross encroached upon him and enveloped him. So three things that I want to pick up on. I want you to think about uh, the Savior's sense of anticipation. Um, I want you to think a little bit about his sense of rejection and then finally, a little bit about his sense of frustration. I suppose we could look at the disciples and their failure to pray in this story, but I, I want to look primarily at, at the Savior. So sense of anticipation, sense of rejection, and uh, a sense of frustration. First of all, then, his sense of anticipation. Jesus, it would appear, had come to the Garden of Gethsemane with um, 11 of his disciples. Judas, it would appear, had already left the upper room and gone his own way. And we'll see that unfold here in this passage. Um, he left eight of his disciples somewhere around the entrance to the garden. Uh, there was probably a, a natural place at the entrance of the garden for people to congregate. Um, and then he himself went with three of his disciples, James and John and Peter, um, further into the garden, a stone's throw, we're told in one of the Gospels. He traveled a stone's throw further into the garden to pray. And uh, 
he himself left the three and then went a little bit dis a little distance further and, and uh, began to cry to his father. A couple of things that strike me about um, his sense of anticipation. First of all, his confession to the disciples. He says in, 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 in verse 37 that he was troubled. Uh, they, they noticed at first, at least, that he was troubled about something. Um, the look of horror and turmoil must have been written all over his face. They'd been with Jesus for three years and uh, they would have known a little bit about his facial expressions. And somehow they noticed that that particular evening he was unusually troubled and seemed to be in anguish. In verse 38, Jesus told his three disciples, the inner three, and it's difficult to know why they were allowed to travel with Jesus and the rest of them uh, weren't. And, and it may have been that, that Jesus wanted to facilitate a greater hunger and thirst in these three disciples than there was in the others. The truth is, I don't know. They were the inner circle, the, the, the inner three Peter, James, and John. Anyhow, Jesus told these disciples that he was exceedingly sorrowful unto death. My soul is overwhelmed, he says, with sorrow. And, and this is the, the language of someone who feels utterly abandoned. He's longing for uh, help and, and uh, he's longing for companionship in his struggle, but he feels abandoned and he's filled with anguish. His sorrow was the kind of sorrow that was so deep and so intense that it almost overwhelmed him in the sense that it almost killed him. It was not that he desired to be dead. It was rather that his sorrow was a deadly sorrow. But we ask the question as Jesus uh, anticipates death, why was he so troubled? I mean, there have been thousands of Christian martyrs who have gone to their death with a great sense of peace. They've faced death with courage and sometimes even with a note of tranquility. So why was Jesus so overwhelmed to the point of death? After all, he knew that he would rise again. He had already told his disciples that on the third day that he would rise again. He'd been telling the disciples that for some time on at least three occasions in Mark's gospel, he makes mention of the fact that he would rise again on the third day. So why was he so troubled in comparison to those who went and died martyr's a martyr's death and did so with such a great sense of peace for Example, Hugh Latimore, when he was being burnt at the stake with his colleague, Bishop Ridley, he said to his colleague, be of good cheer, Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day, by God's grace, light up a candle in England, as I trust will never be put out. So why was there such a difference in Jesus and in Hugh Latimer? Well, I think here's where the difference lies. They went to their death knowing that they would enjoy the help of their heavenly father. Jesus was going to his death 
knowing that he would experience the judgment of his heavenly father. He was troubled and fearful about the indescribable experience of being forsaken, abandoned, and cut off by his father as he became sin for us. Jesus was overwhelmed, I think, as he anticipated those hours of darkness on the cross, and not just the darkness, but the spiritual darkness that would envelop his soul as he took our place and bore what we should have borne. The word Gethsemane, of course, means olive press. It was a garden where someone pressed, uh, where, where, where someone pressed the olives that they had grown, and uh, there must have been an olive press where the olives that were grown on the Mount of Olives and in other places were brought and pressed, and the oil was extracted, and so it was a place where the olives were crushed and pressed, and the oil flowed from them. And it, it was a very, it, it was apt, I think, that 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 Jesus should have been in such turmoil here, as the horror of the impending cross experience crushed him and pressed in upon him. So, what do we say about all of that? Well, if we learn anything, I think we learn that this salvation that you and I bask in and enjoy this reconciliation that we have enjoyed with a God that we were estranged from, this sense of forgiveness that our sins, though they were many, have all been washed away. It was a costly thing. It cost God dearly to provide us with salvation. It cost us his son, and it cost the son the rejection of his father, from whom he had never been separated for all eternity in, in, in the past. And as we look at the anguish of Jesus, it, it reminds us that the judgment of God must be an awful thing to experience. Who would ever choose to ignore the provision of Jesus, uh, the substitutionary offer of Jesus, and go on and experience this themselves, how horrific that would be. When I look at the sorrow of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, I wouldn't want to be without him, because I would never want to experience what he experienced. The second thing that strikes me uh, is, is, is uh, uh, about his sense of anticipation. It's not just his confession, I'm overwhelmed to the point of death, but it, his sense of submission Jesus prays on three separate occasions that if it's possible, could the cup pass from him? So what is this cup that he is thinking about? Well, the, the, the drinking of a bitter cup is a metaphor that's used in the Old Testament to describe the judgment or the experience of the judgment of God. And so God's judgment is like a bitter cup that people need to drink. So there's numerous uh, examples of that. Isaiah 51, 17, Jeremiah 25, 15. You can look them up on uh, sometime when you have time. I'll, I'll read one of them. Uh, Isaiah 51, 17. Awake, awake, rise up, Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath. You have, who have drained drained it to its dregs, the goblet, 
that makes people stagger. And of course, it points in the prophets to the fact that Israel is going to experience God's fury and God's wrath for their idolatry and their sinlessness and their waywardness. And when Jesus anticipates the drinking of this cup, the bitter cup of God's judgment, he is anticipating the judgment of God that he would become the recipient of on our behalf as he atones for our sins, as he bears the penalty that we should have borne as sinners. And, and so when he talks about the cup of uh, passing from him, that's the cup that he is thinking about, the bitter cup of, of God's judgment. And when Jesus prays for this cup to be taken from him, I don't think it's a superficial prayer. I think it's a genuine prayer. Father, if there's another way for sinners to be saved, if there's any other way, having to be abandoned, forsaken, cut off, the object of your wrath that, rather than your affections. Father, if there's any other way, then please take this cup from me. Save me from this experience. If, if there's another means, but there was no other means. It was the hymn writer who said, there was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gates of heaven and let us in. There was no one else free from sin, no one else qualified to take someone else's punishment because everyone had to face the punishment for their own sin. We needed a sacrifice, a substitute, it was flawless and sinless, a lamb without spot and without blemish. And while he wanted to be saved from this experience in his humanity, he was nevertheless willing to die to his own will and to surrender to the will of his father. Everything within him was committed to being obedient to his father's will. It was the father's will that Jesus should drink this cup on our behalf. It was the Father's will that uh, Jesus would drink it so that there wouldn't even be a dread, not even a drop of condemnation left for those who turn by faith to him. This is grace beyond description. Jesus willingly taking my place. Those moments of waiting in the Garden of Gethsemane for God's plan to unfold must have been some of the most pressurized moments of his entire life. He knew that the, the time of his death had come. He knew that in a few moments the mob would arrive. He, he knew that he would be taken uh, to the high priest's house where he would be falsely condemned, handed over to the Romans and crucified. But he was willing to remain there and fulfill his father's will rather than disappearing into the darkness of the night, never to be seen again. And it could have been so different. As the father listened to the cries of his son, why did he not answer? And if he had answered, who could ever have said one solitary thing to the father in rescuing his son? But Jesus remains committed 
And so does the Father to this plan of salvation. Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness like a flood, when the Prince of Life, a ransom, shed for us his precious blood. Well, what about his sense of isolation? Jesus asked his disciples to pray with him. He needed them to stand with him in prayer. He needed his disciples to strengthen him by their prayers, which is quite humbling. These are three of his closest friends in the world, but not even these, his closest friends, could watch and pray with him. He came no less than three times to find them sleeping. He bore the agony of those moments alone. So the suffering of Jesus, as we think about his anticipation, it was a lonely suffering. He had no one to stand with him. There was no one to strengthen him apart from the angel that the Father sent. But the Son was not deterred from the cross. I remember uh, the words of a hymn. It was alone that the Savior prayed in dark Gethsemane. Alone he drained the bitter cup and suffered there for me. Alone, alone, he bore it all alone. He gave himself to save his own. He suffered and bled and died alone. As we've pondered the loneliness of Christ just for a few minutes and the failure of the disciples to pray with him, have we left Jesus alone in the shadows of our life? Or are we still standing four square with him? Well, that's his sense of anticipation. What about his rejection? Jesus had suffered a life of rejection. Joseph and Mary had to flee to Egypt. As soon as he was born, because Herod was intent on taking his life, he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, the prophet Isaiah tells us. But I think these moments uh, are perhaps the moments where he experienced the greatest sense of rejection of all. First of all, a little bit about his betrayer. It was Judas who came to the garden, leading that crowd, that large crowd, that mob. And, and uh, he told them, obviously, that he would identify Jesus by kissing him on the cheek. And what a sense of rejection Jesus must have felt as Judas kissed him. The, this a sense of betrayal as Judas's lips pressed upon his cheek or his forehead. Judas was one of the twelve. He had spent his time listening to Jesus, watching Jesus, being with Jesus. He was privileged beyond description. This was one of the disciples who had heard every sermon Jesus preached, every story that Jesus told. He had watched Jesus, of course, perform miracle after miracle. He had seen the good that Jesus had done for so many people. And here he is turning Jesus in to the Jewish, Jewish authorities for 30 pieces of silver. To me, Jesus is one of the, or Judas is one of the saddest people in the Bible. He kissed the door to heaven, as we often say, and, and yet went to hell. He sat at the door of heaven for three years. 
But, but it would appear that he never went through it. Jesus on one occasion referred to Judas as a, as a demon or as a devil. Surely you can't be a devil and be a child of God. In, in the upper room when he washed the disciples' feet, he says, those who've had a bath don't need to have another bath or don't need to be washed again. And he said to the disciples, and you are clean, but not all of you. Because Judas was among them, and John tells us he knew who would betray him. So there's Judas. What a sense of betrayal Jesus must have felt. As Judas came and betrayed him and sold him and handed him over to the to, to, to the, uh, the, the religious leaders. Well, here's the second thing uh, about his sense of rejection. What about the soldiers themselves? Verse 47 tells us that they came armed with swords and clubs. We're told that they came from the chief priests and the elders, probably the temple guards or the temple police. At the very least, they were uh, hand-chosen delegates of the religious leaders, people who spent time with the religious leaders. No doubt some of the religious leaders were among the crowd that came to arrest Jesus. Um, now, they came armed with swords and clubs, and it, it wasn't that Jesus was a terrorist. He wasn't one of the zealots from the north who carried a little knife in his robe to dispatch Roman soldiers. He wasn't a thief or a robber. Instead, he was someone who gave constantly away to people. He was the very epitome of goodness. He healed people and taught them the message of God's kingdom. Yet here's the mob with swords and clubs armed to the teeth to arrest him. And, and you're left asking the question, why is there such hatred for Jesus? Why are they, why did they refuse to listen to Jesus and carefully consider, could he be the Christ? How is it possible to be so hostile? I, I think that their hostility had been slowly building. I don't think that this is something that just arose on the night. I, I think that this is something that had been slowly building and now they've reached a point where they are capable of almost anything. In the garden, we see their plans being realized as they take Jesus away. But in the midst of it all, Jesus must have felt greatly a sense of rejection. And you sense that in, in his words in verse 55. Am I leading a rebellion that you've come out against me with swords and clubs? They took him off like a common criminal, even though he, violence had never crossed his lips. He had been nothing but tender-hearted. You know, I, I sometimes struggle to understand these religious leaders and their hardness of heart. But I see people, uh, and I meet people, and, I, and, and slowly they've hardened their heart over the years. I, I remember one man who used to lead the singing in a local mission hall. He once stood at the front and led the choruses. He often prayed and led the whole group in prayer. But when I met him, he used to stand and mock those who were quoting scripture and he would twist it and throw it back at them. 
It's frightening to think that it's possible to harden your heart to that extent. It's, it, it's a frightening thing to think that you could reach a point where you became so callous that you were capable of even this. I hope that none of us are hardening our heart against the Savior. The last thing is this, his sense of frustration. I think he must have been frustrated at two things. First of all, his sense of dullness, their, their spiritual dullness, if you will. Peter took out a sword and made a lunge for the high priest's temple, the high priest or the, the temple uh, servant, the high priest's servant, I suppose he was called. Now, in some ways that's understandable and it's commendable. But, G but Peter's actions do reveal a lack of understanding. He hadn't listened to Jesus, or at least if he had listened to Jesus, he hadn't taken on board what Jesus had said. Jesus had been telling them over and over again on three occasions in Mark's gospel, Mark records him as telling the disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'll suffer many things at the hands of the chief priests and the elders, I'll be handed over to the Gentiles, I'll be crucified and, and die, and on the third day I will rise again. But somehow they hadn't pro processed that. Here in Matthew's gospel, he said that the Son of Man hadn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So, so he'd been telling his disciples his kingdom was not of this world, yet they were so slow to listen, so slow to understand. And they even tried here to save him from the cross. And Jesus said to his disciples, you know, if I needed to be saved, don't you think that I could ask my father and he would send 12 legions of angels or put 12 legions of angels at my disposal if there's 6,000 uh, uh, soldiers in a Roman legion? That's 72,000 angels, Jesus says, the father would make uh, put at my disposal. Thousands upon thousands of angels would come and, and rescue me from this scenario. But then how could the words of the prophets ever be fulfilled? How could he be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities? How could he be led as a lamb to the slaughter? How could the cross and the salvation that he provided ever be if, if Peter were to be successful in saving him from the cross? No, the cross was the only way. And, and, and you sort of wonder, don't you, as you look at Peter and his inability to process the importance of the cross, the need for the cross, sometimes you wonder, how is it that people can be so blind, even today, that they are so blind to what's happening at the cross, that Jesus is becoming our sacrifice, that he's been wounded for our transgressions? How is it that people can miss that? And, and, and remain so dull, spiritually dull. Even when you explain it in a Christianity explored, explored course or an alpha course, still people don't get it. And I guess it's because the God of this world has blinded their eyes and the only thing that can open their eyes is the Spirit of God. And God can do the impossible. And God did the impossible, Acts 6, verse 7. 
So the word of God spread, the number of the disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Some of these people who'd been dispatched to arrest Jesus came to faith in Christ because God did the unthinkable. And he opened their spiritual eyes and opened Peter's spiritual eyes. Peter was restored. Well, the last thing is just the fickleness of the disciples, not just their dullness, but their fickleness. Jesus told them in the upper room, I was looking at this earlier this week with the students. Um, Jesus told the disciples, all of you will fall away on account of me tonight. All of you. Of course, Peter protested, not me. But Peter wasn't the only one that protested. All of them protested. We'll, we'll lay down our lives for you. We'll go to prison for you. All of them declared that they would never deny Jesus, but they did. And the last verse of the passage that we read together uh, makes it uh, clear. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. So they did. The very thing they said they wouldn't do is the very thing that they did do. And they disappeared and deserted him. And I suppose as I picture them running from Christ, I think, what a pitiful sight, running from the Savior. The cost is too high. The challenge is more than they could face. They probably retreated back over the Mount of Olives to Bethany and to the safety of the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Who knows where they went? But that teaches me two things, and with this I'm finished. Do I really think that I would have been any different? Do I think that I would have been stronger and that I would have stood with Jesus and identified with Jesus? I think that I would have been like the rest of the disciples and I too would have deserted Jesus. Because the truth is, unless God gives me grace, the grace and strength that I need, I'll be just like these disciples and I'll fall flat on my spiritual face. Because left to my own devices, as Jesus says, the flesh, the spirit may be willing, but my flesh is weak. And it just reminds me of my absolute dependency on grace to survive. And that without grace, I'm doomed to failure. And so are you. But the other thing is that's worth flagging up is this, that, you know, but this is the price that some Christians need to pay. There are Christians in the world today, and this is the very price that they're being asked to pay. And they refuse to run from Christ. They refuse to desert Christ. Instead, they own Christ. They identify with Christ. They stand with Christ. And let's make no mistake about it. It's a cost worth paying. Because who else has the words of eternal life? Who else can give peace, the peace of the Father? Who else can give you the assurance that you've been adopted into God's family and that you have the right to call yourself a son or daughter of God? Well, the cost is worth paying, and Jesus is worth standing with. Desertion, desertion and running from Christ is pitiful and it's a tragedy because to whom else will you go for the words of eternal life? 
Well, the disciples were restored. Thankfully, by grace, they were restored. And they were prepared to stand in front of the religious leaders and own Christ. And the Spirit came upon them on the day of Pentecost. And may that same Spirit empower and enable us to own Christ and to stand four square with Christ so that on the last day, he will own us. So the three things were fairly simple, weren't they? There was his sense of anticipation as he anticipates the horror of the cross. This was a costly salvation. His sense of rejection, his disciples, uh, his, 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 disciple, his own disciple betrayed him. And the mob came and arrested him. What rejection. And finally, his sense of frustration, how slow the disciples were uh, to process the need for the cross and the importance of the cross. How slow they were to process that, to understand the importance of the cross. And I hope that we'll have a fresh, fresh appreciation of it. And uh, their fickleness. They said they would lay down their lives for Jesus, but they deserted him. May God help us not just to be people who speak, who talk the talk, but also who walk the walk. That, that's, I think, what Jesus is looking for. So I'll hand back to uh, Graham, and I pray that the Lord will help us as we think about the cross uh, over this Easter season.